Hey guys, hope you have had a great week. We have an incredible uh, friend who's going to join us today, Kyle. Yes, I am very excited. We have Richard Wolf joining us. Yes. That's a badass name. It just hit me. Like the last name Wolf, that's kind of cool. It is a cool name. Yeah. And he's, I mean, I love this guy. Um, could talk to him endlessly. Tons of questions for him. That's going to be amazing. Wanted to start with a few stories. Um, super depressing one of the Iowa caucus potential primary <laughs> poll <laughs> results. Here, talk about it for a minute while I pull it up because I forgot to pull it up on my phone. Oh, um, <laughs> this is we're professionals, ladies and gentlemen. This is this is a professional podcast, right? <laughs> uh, here's what you need to know about this poll. It is full of a bunch of people. I fucking despise with a burning passion. Mm. Every single one of these people should quit politics and never come back, and I never want to hear from them again. Okay. With that intro, here it actually is. By the <laughs> way, we're not editing that. We're keeping that whole thing in. <laughs> so this is assuming, I guess, that Joe Biden doesn't run again. This Which, was... by the way, he's 50% dead now. By then, he'd be 75% dead. Let's, I actually could hear Eric laughing at you saying that in the control room. They... What do you... What do, what do you think are the chances before we reveal the results of this poll that I'm teasing? Of him endlessly? living to what, 2024? Of him running again. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, let me just say this. If he runs again, they're going to have to have somebody with a hand up his ass <laughs> acting like a puppet. I actually think that now you're just trying to hear Eric laugh again. No, um, I'm serious. I actually, you guys have dead. You saw the Afghanistan comments. I, I, actually, I think we should I think get he, out. If he's That's alive, they're going to run him again. If he is, That's a big if. If he is sentient <laughs> and alive, even even like 25% alive, they're going to run him again. Listen. Because, look, they already have the basement strategy down. I mean, he doesn't have to do, he didn't do anything COVID to win might this not, time. COVID might not be a big thing then, though. I know, but. Uh, and then you got to actually get out there, son. But he's not, he's not getting out there now when he's president. I mean, I don't think that he they feel that he really has to do interviews or be out there. The press mostly gives him a, a pass and he's very limited in what he you know does publicly already. I think that if he is still at all like capable at all, and I mean bare minimum, that they can do basically what you said and just like roll him out. He can read some words off a teleprompter. Kenny? Even pre In 2024, Kenny? I really think they're going to go with him again. And um, because I think they feel like, you know, they just, they really believe in this guy's like electability and that he's he's the one who we got to keep the, the Republican unique evil at bay. So we got to go with this guy no matter what. I really think so. Okay. So here's the thing. He announced the whole, I'm pulling out of Afghanistan thing. If he actually does it, I'm giving him massive credit. I'll become a Biden yep. stan. I'll be a Biden bro if he does that. Just okay? on that one issue, though, to clarify. Yes, on that one yeah. issue. But, okay. like, in the clip of him talking about that, I was like, yo, he might keel over and die right now, Ski. Yeah, but then he said things that you loved. Right. And so that I loved, too. So well, then we, I give, give him credit, even though he seems half but dead. But I will overlook, I'll, I'll vote for his fucking carcass if he gets us out of Afghanistan. Well, so I'll be clear about that. But see, I, think I think we're sort of deluding of ourselves feel. thinking he's going to make it to 2024 or be able to, like, speak normal in 2024 at all. Because bottom line is, and Biden's people, call me, I'll give him a dope mix of Percocet, Adderall, 
Like, you just got to get the right four or five drug they're, cocktail. They're all over that. And he Don't will be worry. zooted remember, in the debate. Like, Trump, remember, remember Trump in the debates where well, he was just screaming over Biden the whole time? Remember Biden in the debate versus Bernie. Yeah, they, they got him, the they, cocktail. They, they gave got him the good it all shit. together. But they only so. gave it to him that once and then lost the prescription. <laughs> Maybe they need to up, up the dose or re remix. He's got access to the best doctors and medical science you can imagine. I think they're going to roll him out again in 2024. Liter however, literally roll him out in a wheelchair. Go ahead. <laughs> however, if they don't, right? Here are the top contenders. Drum roll for this horror show. Number one, Kamala Harris, 28%. Uh, pretty dominant. Uh, but also, let's be, I mean, we knew that was going to be the case. Yeah, She's but the vice president. And it's key, just like. She could collapse to like 7% any minute. Because last time she opened her mouth in a race, she didn't even make it to Iowa. I she was leading. And then she I started know. talking. And everybody was like, ah. And then she plummeted. I know. But she's the vice president now it's a different it's a different deal i think i think anyway okay we'll we'll talk about this more okay. after number one kamala harris 28 percent. number two mayor pete uh, by the way okay here's a here's a tough question out of those two who do you pick kamala me too me yeah. too i'll take kamala all day over worst. pete pete's the, he's the worst, worst. <laughs> he's the worst the smarmiest most careerest vapid ladder climbing okay. son of a bitch all right next is michelle obama 12 percent oh, no! Out, which that, you can almost just discard though. She's never. She doesn't want to be in office. She's never going to run for president. The Everyone needs on, to just like. You never know. You know the egos on these fucking people. People, you say that about Trump. Oh, he never wants to run for office. But she always. But he would pretend she does. I really don't. Okay. So anyway, we'll I'd, agree I'd to disagree. I pick Kamala over her too. By the way. Um, you she, would pick Kamala over Michelle. Yes. Michelle is really bad. Worse than Kamala, for sure. She's got this weird, like, cult of personality now. I think now. I'd pick Michelle over. Nah, I Kamala. watched a documentary with Michelle Obama. Sort of wanted to kill myself. Oh, really? Oh, okay. my well, God. Let me watch the doc and get back to you. Next one, let me, we'll ask this one. Klobuchar. Klobuchar or Kamala, which one you would pick? Kamala. Wow, Kamala's doing pretty well for you. I fucking hate her. What about, what <laughs> this about. Is, this is like saying, would you rather have somebody shit in your mouth or about, shit in your eyeball? About, I guess my eyeball. <laughs> what about, what about if it was Klobuchar versus Pete? What would you do? Klobuchar. Klobuchar. Pete's the worst. Pete, Pete's the worst. Definitely the worst. He's the fucking worst. Even though nominally I ideologically agree with him more, I don't believe a word that fucking guy says. All right. Now, I love the He's next one. He's got dead one. bodies in the basement. Sorry, go ahead. I love the next one because you think that you've gotten through the list of the worst people by now, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've gotten... Kamala, Pete, Amy, but then lo and behold, the next one on the list is John Kerry at seven percent. <laughs> the guy who lost to George W. Bush after George W. Bush was already president for four years. Yeah, we're thinking about him again. You know, didn't work last time. Maybe this time. You never know. He's a lot older and a lot less relevant. It's like so they're let's trying go for to it. lose. So I see nobody I can even tolerate. Right. I don't see Yang. I don't see uh, Ellison. Yeah. I don't see anybody that I, I next like even to a little bit. Next of an, you of get victory. into like the progressives. Next is Warren at three percent. Uh, Bernie at two percent. Uh, I mean Bernie's, Bernie's it, it's over. I mean I know. Yeah. It's sad, but it is what it is. What are you gonna do? And then AOC at two percent. So there you go. By the I way, mean look this shame is... on her for plummeting to two percent, <laughs> blowing all of the, you know, name recognition. She had potential. Had Stress had two percent is really pathetic. It is for someone who is, I mean, it's seventy zillion Twitter followers and all this media in, and everyone like, in the country eh. knows who she is. Everyone, in everybody the country knows, knows who she now. is. That's and right. look, it's partly not her fault because she, you know, Fox News and the right decided to demonize her. 
Democratic establishment decide to throw under the bus is like the emblem of what we can never do if we want to get elected. But part of it is also, I think, you know, she's kind of played into that she never, caricature. And I haven't seen her lean into the right issues more than like once or twice in her entire time in office. Yeah. She, all the ones where she gets aggressive and she leans in are all like fringe stuff that does not appeal to the majority of Americans. I mean, look, and I agree with her on virtually every issue. But yeah, that the, she she likes to lean into the things that are that are edgy. not popular. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Good job. You're a fucking politician. The, brand, the <laughs> like, brand is to be like about the things that aren't popular. I mean, right. that's kind of the brand she's created. Right. So then you end up with two. Right. So congrats on that. <laughs> good luck in your fucking run. There. Even against even Chucky Schumer. Oh, God. So, Chucky Schumer will get up there and okay, win. So um, to not leave us with that depressing of a, a state of affairs, though, someone who impressed the hell who I've long been a, a fan of and who impressed the hell out of me this week in the way that um, he set up and, and was able to ultimately execute on the Chauvin trial is Attorney General Keith Ellison, right, who yeah. you mentioned, who, you know, I think he's got, he was a civil rights lawyer. He's the first black statewide elected in Minnesota. This was obviously a historic verdict. He was a great congressman. Fantastic congressman. Bernie's biggest ally. Early on the Bernie train. Er, super early. Um, and so, and <laughs> it's worth noting, remember, he he obviously ran for DNC chair, and mm -hmm. Obama did everything he could to make sure Tom that Perez, that didn't yeah. happen and that his guy, Tom Perez, who's been so amazing, um, got in as DNC chair, which was really remarkable because mostly Obama's been, you know, he's only intervened a few times. That's right. But that was the first thing that he went in hard That's to what make makes sure me like Keith. that Keith Ellison lost. So he had been sort of sidelined as like, you know, part of the Bernie outcast. Mm -hmm. We can't ever have anything to do with those those people guy. Now, though, he has this national profile and is winning accolades from, you know, everybody. Everybody except the dumbest people in the country. Everybody right. across across the spectrum of the Democratic Party, certainly. But I think also, you know, a fair amount of just normie, like, nonpartisans yeah. who are impressed with him and his, his conduct with this trial. So I think, he, you know, for me, he's he's really become very interesting and has a lot of compelling compelling reasons why he could become a big national star. I'll say this. Run, Keith, run. There, I said it. No, seriously. I mean, he's the closest one. Uh, that I could think of. And this really did just jolt him into the conversation nationally. Yeah. And the fact that Obama tried so hard to end him and not have him as the head of the DNC, what that tells me is there's at least some issues where he means it. And Obama knows that Keith Ellison means it. Yeah. So I'd love it. I'd love it. And also... So you don't jump in early with Bernie Sanders before anyone knew that, you know, this was really going to turn into anything. If you don't anything. actually care you, about some if shit. If you don't yeah. believe it. Mm -hmm. That's, That's exactly, right. That's so exactly good for right. him. I've always, um, just on a personal level, too, found him to be incredibly nice, incredibly approachable, incredibly down to earth. And in the times when I've interviewed him and, and pressed him on different things, extraordinarily just, like, smart, thoughtful... Not a sort of like knee jerk reactionary, like, you know, hard ideologue, but someone who has a lot of nuance and thoughtfulness. So anyway, put a pin in that one. Indeed. Um, so there's something going on in New York. Yes. Uh, maybe you can tell the lovely folks about that. Yeah. So this is actually a big deal. They are decriminalizing sex work. And so 
There's a little bit of nuance here. This follows in the footsteps of a couple other um, cities, notably Baltimore and Philadelphia did the same thing. Some of the boroughs in New York had kind of gotten out ahead. Brooklyn in particular mm -hmm. had um, aggressively, you know, sought to basically decriminalize within Brooklyn. But uh, this is a big deal. And of course, when it's New York City, um, can start a trend across the country. So pretty important. The nuance here is uh, no longer criminalizing sex work, still going after um, Johns and traffickers. Johns means pimps? Johns means the people who are soliciting the prostitution. Oh, 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 oh Johns, right. So yes. the person who's looking to have sex with somebody for money. Yes. And Charmingly, right. so they go after. That term. I, yeah, I didn't, didn't know that. Man. I <laughs> yeah. genuinely didn't. What a weird thing to call him. Why are you calling him? Is it just like generic male name? Because obviously all men want to do that. Is he, that the idea? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I, I am not familiar with the origins and etymology of the term, <laughs> but I can get back to you on that. However, that's kind of the general idea is no longer going after, you know, the sex, work, sex workers themselves, um, but continuing to go after the traffickers so, and the uh, solicitors, I guess. So it's definitely a good thing, but it's still this weird middle ground, if you ask me, because sure. if you decriminalize it. And so basically what they're saying is we're not going to arrest the prostitutes anymore. The business is still going to exist. I, I mean, obviously, the fact that they were like basically persecuting these women is terrible. Yes. Um, and and let me just say. Not only go, they weren't going after all of these three groups equally. They were overwhelmingly right, right, right. targeting the sex workers Because it's themselves. the easiest thing to do. Right, because right. they're the mm -hmm. sort of most visible. Most you visible. Know. Yeah. Most out so, but if you think about it. Most visible and most vulnerable. I that's right. Say. Yeah. I th honestly, I think the real solution is you have to legalize, tax, and regulate. And emphasis on that last word, regulate. Mm. Because they actually have, like, prostitution is legal just outside of Las Vegas. And uh, they have zero STD transmissions because there's regular health checks. That's part of the job. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually debating this with my cousin recently. And he was like, I saw a documentary about sex work in wherever, somewhere in Europe. He's mm -hmm. like, they have it really rough, bro. This is not a panacea. And I'm like, nobody's saying it's a no panacea. No one's saying this is like an amazing No, nobody's yeah, saying that. It's, it's what, I, you know, I don't like the fact that certain drugs I think are terrible for you. But they should be legal, taxed, and regulated because if they're illegal, then you push it underground. It goes to the black market. And you have drug cartels and wanton violence and murder and shooting in the street. And you have the substances cut with other things that can kill you. That's yeah. what we saw even during Prohibition. Learn the lessons of history. Even during Prohibition, when alcohol was illegal, they used to make batches of alcohol in bathtubs, but they would cut it with something that where every now and then you'd get a bad batch of alcohol and people would drink it and die. They think that's how Philip Seymour Hoffman died, that he went to, he was a heroin addict, he went to go get what he viewed as his normal dose of heroin, yeah. and it was laced with fentanyl, and uh, he died. The uh, reason why it was laced with fucking fentanyl is because heroin's illegal. It's because the drugs are illegal. Right. So if you legalize tax and regulate it, you, you bring it, instead of underground, you bring it above ground. And right. a lot hinges on that last word, regulation. And you can regulate it efficiently and effectively, where you basically eliminate STD transmission, eliminate overdoses. We talked about this with Carl Hart. You right. Know, where well, this would be the best way to get rid of the sex traffickers. I mean, 100%. You, you take it out in the shadows. Make it a legitimate business. Their markets. Make, just like give you, them benefits, give them health care, give them all that just shit. Just like you legalize drugs, you kill the business of the cartels. You end a lot of the violence, the drug-related violence that, you know, spills over and has massive consequences here and abroad, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, I mean, that's always been what makes sense to me. But do you know that this is interesting, and I don't know how many, uh, how many of you guys know this, but 
Chomsky and Chris Hedges both disagree with this. Oh, really? Yeah. What do they say? There's, it's funny. There's this like strange overlap between some religious folks on the right mm -hmm. and some people on, you know, the hard left. And they just think it's like th a horseshoe that, kind of a deal. A little bit yeah. that, on this particular issue. Generally, I think the horseshoe theory is trash, but like they feel like it is ex exploitative by its very nature. Mm. To have anybody have a situation where they're paying for sex is exploitative by its very nature and it's oppressive and so it shouldn't exist. So, I mean, I might agree with that or I might not agree with that, but I think it's better for the people themselves to make choices about what they what their options are. Yeah, now, the best situation is to have the sort of politics that we both believe in, that Richard Wolf, our wonderful um, guest today, also believes in, that provides for the basic dignity of every human being so that you know probably fewer people would choose to be in what is oftentimes an extraordinarily exploitive and degrading situation. But, um, you know, so I think, like, if you really care and those those people Chomsky and Chris Hedges would obviously agree with all of that but I don't think I don't believe in just like coming in and saying we're going to make the decision for you about whether or not this is the choice you should make yeah I mean I think you're right about that but it is an interesting conversation right because they would argue like they're not they would say nobody's actually really making a choice mm. because if if you are the type of person to do that you needed to have something in your past that was traumatic, that was a bad experience, that sort of led you down this road of extreme promiscuity or whatever. Uh, this is what they would argue. Yeah, do you agree with that? No, I think there are instances where somebody had yeah. maybe some traumatic things in their childhood or right. whatever, and then they go down that path. And so in some instances, it might be an exploitative thing. But no, I do think there are plenty of people. Sex is part of life. It's part of human nature, literally. So yeah, there are plenty of people who just sort of like it and that's something they or are they interested just in. Don't, it just doesn't. Or it's not as big a deal. Right. It's not. feel like a big deal to right, them. Right. Exactly. I mean. It could go cut either way. Sure. Yeah. So I guess I just, in general with these things, whether it's sex or any other adult choice, I tend to prefer to let the adult make the choice versus the state accept in, you know, circumstances where someone else is being hurt. Uh, the obvious caveats so, there. Do you think, this is the final question on yeah. this one, but do you think that we will get to a point eventually where prostitution is not just decriminalized, but legal, taxed, and regulated, let's say, in the majority of the states in the country. In the next how many years? Ever? In the next 30 years. In the next 30 years. Will prostitution, prostitution be legal, taxed, and regulated, like it is just outside of Vegas in Nevada, mm -hmm. in most of the states in the country? 30 years is a long time. 30 years is a long time. Because we're already decriminalizing now. So that means other places, California, like all these places are going to decriminalize. Then people are going to go, hmm, we still have the problem of the pimps. I sort Why of, don't we put them out of business and legalize tax and regulate? I don't know. I sort of, I, I would like to say yes, but I, I, I'm not sure I really believe that the answer is yes. Because, I mean, we've held on to the stupid war on drugs for a fucking long time. True, but that's on the way out too. Way beyond what, you know what the evidence or anything would make sense. And we have such like weird hangups around sex in this country. I have a hard time imagining us like fully being able to shed all of that cultural baggage in the next 30 years, which in some ways is a long time and some ways is not that long of a time. Do you think this country's weirdly hung up in that they're sort of prudish and stuck up about sex or that they're like 
loose well, that's and the weird too part, willy-nilly it, about it. It, it. The weird part is it's both. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, it's like everything's things are like super sexualized. Women are really like, you know, commodify all that stuff. But on the other hand, we're super like try to pretend like we're all, you know, prim and proper and never do anything wrong. So it's all sort of there's a. A especially among older generations, I think maybe younger people are have better relationship to all of these things. But yeah, there's this um, sense that you have to keep anything that's untoward behind closed doors. But then there's all this overt sexualness that's commodified in the mainstream. So it's like this. We that's why it's weird. It's yeah. like mm -hmm. both. You well, know? interesting fact for people over the age of 70, sex doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad to know that. No, I'm it's really true. Glad to know that. It's true. Um, okay, one more story. This is an interesting study. Let me pull this one up. Um, this is from the New York Times. Dozen mega donors gave 3.4 billion dollars, one in every 13 dollars since 2009. This is based on a new study, and basically what they found is that the top 12 donors. They split equally between six Democrats and six Republicans. They include Wall Street billionaires, investors, Facebook co-founder, et cetera, et cetera. There's massive inequality in like the zip codes mm -hmm. in terms of giving and the top zip codes in terms of political giving. Many of them aren't even red, like people don't even live there. It's mm -hmm. like skyscrapers and post office boxes that rich people mm. use to like, you know, for their shell companies or whatever, mm -hmm. I guess. I don't really know what rich people are doing with them. And then the top givers... In a way, this is, is kind of has a hopeful piece to it. I'll tell you in a minute. So the top giver overall was Michael Bloomberg, who gave $1.4 billion. Of that $1 billion went toward his own failed campaign. <laughs> Number two. <laughs> what a loser. I know, right? <laughs> Imagine pissing away $1.4 billion. And then he still, like, ripped off his staff in these really oh. obnoxious, horrible ways. Okay, number two is <laughs> Tom Steyer. <laughs> Tom Steyer, 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 Anyway, Mr. Steyer also spent uh, $653 million on his own campaign. More than half went toward his own campaign. And then the third was a Republican contributor. Sheldon Adelson and his wife, who gave $523 million. So those were the top three. And the reason I said the Bloomberg and the Steyer thing is, like, a little bit hopeful to me is that their shit failed so dramatically. So clearly... But then on the other hand, like, you know, if Bloomberg just hadn't been... He was able to buy his way onto the stage. Right. And it, he did it so late. So, so late. So late. Didn't even technically qualify for the debate, but they're just like, eh, come on. What's the harm? And then got many endorsements. Remember that? I'm, I think uh, Mariel Bowser, who's the mayor of this city, endorsed him. Like a bunch of people who mm -hmm. he'd given money to their to them or their foundation. or He has some weird, like, you know, leadership thing that he sponsors people into. Anyway, people who were associated with him who received his money through their philanthropies, some of those people supported him. This was at the time when everyone was like, this is looking like Bernie's going to win and we need a backup plan. If, if Bloomberg was going to come save the day. If he had not been so terrible on the debate stage, and Elizabeth Warren, this is the one really good thing she did in the whole campaign. I mean, she just ripped him to shreds. Yeah. Although there is an argument that that ultimately hurt Bernie. But whatever. It was satisfying to watch. Um, 
So there is an argument to be made that if things had gone a little bit differently and he hadn't been so like insufferably obnoxious and just totally unacceptable to everyone that he actually had did have a path just based on the money he spent. Yeah. You know, I'm going to give myself credit here Mm -hmm. because I love doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Bloomberg, I was one of few because I remember like Lee Fong, not to I love Lee Fong, so not to like call him out in particular even though that's exactly what i'm doing but he was like basically warning everybody like here comes bloomberg almost like this train is unstoppable look how much money he's spending look at these endorsements he's getting it's on the way it's on the way the entire time i was watching like all right bro yeah here comes bloomberg my ass cheeks here comes bloomberg nowhere here comes bloomberg to cry in his basement it doesn't matter how much money you spend that dude cannot make himself appealing enough it's just not possible but like yes he bought his way to legitimacy and i was actually looking up but it's not working i was looking up how many votes he ultimately ended up getting Mm. because every one of those votes he he paid for it like he bought his way to legitimacy and that's oftentimes what happens in our political system now uh, these are old numbers, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's about 93% of the time the person who raises the most money running for Congress ends up winning. So money actually does sort of buy you victories at the congressional level, yes. and I'm sure even at the Senate level it's like that. With the with presidential races, though, it's a little bit different. I agree with that. Because, it, you know, there's, there's a so lot of— so much national press. So much national press, so it's basically free media for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that just sort of scrambles the whole— way the system would normally work. I agree with that. I think the low, my general theory with this is, number one, the presidential level is just different because it's almost more driven by the national media than anything else. Yes, that's right. Joe Biden didn't have any money in the primary, Mm -hmm. but he had the media and Mm -hmm. that was all he needed. Yep, exactly (laughs) That was all he needed. Um, And so to me, that's not like a hopeful story. That's depressing still story, but it means that money plays a somewhat different role at the presidential level. I think as you go further down the ticket, money becomes more and more important. Exactly right. You can you can basically buy a local election. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and even a congressional election. This is something ninety three percent of the time. This is something that the Koch Network really recognized. They go and buy judge seats in states where judges are elected, and you know, you pour two hundred thousand dollars into a judge's race in West Virginia you or whatever. It. That's it. Where it's you want to have this, you know, environmental decimation. You're going to get the judge who's going to back you up. You can pretty much get that done. Um, The further you go up, you know, at the congressional level, it still matters a whole lot, but Mm -hmm. it's not quite as everything because then also you get into just like this hardened partisan tribalism that's that's difficult to overcome. But again, 93% of the time, the person who raises the most money wins. That also, though, has to do with incumbency because incumbents Mm -hmm. are much more likely to win. They're also much more likely to already be the party that the district has been drawn Mm -hmm. to be. And they're more likely to raise more money. So part of that is the the benefits of incumbency. But 100% of the money makes a, a big difference, no doubt about it. Um, and then the thing that is is new and is encouraging is that this is the first time when you've really had a sort of developed grassroots base of donors. Obama pioneered this, but then, you know, the Sanders and the left, like, there is an alternative power center and source of donations now that really is pretty new and existing. And that's the only part of the story that is encouraging. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, yes, uh, the small dollar donations. I mean, we were having this discussion back when we were founding Justice Democrats. 
what are like what exactly are the things that we're in favor of? And some people were more hardliners on the things that our candidates had to be in favor of. Mm-hmm. Other people were um, a little softer. But, you know, honestly, there was a little bit of a mess up because we when it comes to the money in politics issue, we we all agreed no corporate PAC money is the way to go. They don't yeah. take corporate PAC money. That means they're not corrupt, which means we're all set here. Wrong, because the real thing you need to do is say only raise through small dollar donations. Mm. That's the real trick, because if somebody's only raising through small dollar donations, what that means is they're only representing the people. And it's not business interests. It's not anybody who's has any sort of corrupting effect. Yeah. And so we actually sort of messed up on that a little bit because then. But then you worry about like, oh, are we putting our candidates at a big disadvantage? Yeah, you but, know, to okay, win. But, yes, that's a good point. But I've always made this point, especially if it's like the higher the race is, like if it's a Senate race or something. I, for the life of me, I don't understand why you don't have. This is why you need people who are such effective communicators. If you go out there and brag about the fact, I only take small dollar donations. I don't take any big money at all in any avenue. Yeah. That alone makes up for the fact that you might have a money disadvantage in other ways. Because what you're doing is you're pointing out the discrepancy and the corruption of your opponents. I'm the only one in this race who's actually representing the people. So I'm only taking money and small dollar donations from the people. I actually agree with you because I also just I just reject this premise because this is this is what the mainstream Democratic Party, the argument that they make is like, well, we can't unilaterally disarm. That's what they say. Mm -hmm. So we got to play the game. We got to be corrupt because they're corrupt. Until we get into power and then we promise we're going to change the game. But right now we got to be players in the game in the infamous words of elizabeth warren so i actually agree with you on that yeah uh it's thank you for agreeing with me i appreciate you're welcome anyway we should probably get into the interview (laughs) because we've been talking forever so we have uh as i said before very excited to talk to professor richard wolf he is a professor of economics emeritus at university of massachusetts amherst he is a visiting professor in the grad program in international affairs in new new school university that is in new york city he is the host of economic update with richard wolf which i think you can watch on free speech tv we'll ask him how to check that program out without further ado one of my favorite thinkers richard wolf professor wolf it is so great to see you how are you doing sir Okay, and glad to be here. Um, let's start with your assessment so far of the Biden administration. I assume you're totally in the Biden is exactly like FDR camp. <laughs> New deal all over again. Um, seriously, though, what do you make of what he's done so far? Is there anything that surprised you in a positive way, in a negative way, or is it about what you expected? It's about what I expected. Uh, clearly, he's much, much better than uh, Donald Trump and all of that. But that is an amazingly low bar, and I don't want to use that as a a basis, uh, however attractive that may be for other uh, Democratic centrists or center Democrats. Um, I didn't expect him to be FDR, given his history as a senator. Why should one make such an expectation? Maybe you can make a case that he's a bit better Uh, from that standpoint than he was before. Uh, But I don't expect much from him, and and I haven't gotten very much. Uh, I see that it is now de rigueur, if one can say that, for both Republicans and Democrats, neither of whom seems to understand, let alone embrace, modern monetary theory, 
to none, nonetheless act as though they did, that the printing of money is a kind of freebie that can be used uh, for all kinds of purposes to allow you to push ahead with things you didn't quite dare to do in the past, huge tax cuts for Trump in December of 2017, and now the COVID relief and the infrastructure uh, spending boon again, without borrowing the money to pay for, excuse me, without raising the taxes to pay for it, and therefore borrowing crazily and having the Federal Reserve monetize all of that and pretending that the inflationary possibilities here are nothing anybody has to worry about. Uh, I find this extraordinarily, uh, given the history of economics and the history of capitalism. So, you know, my, my answer is, He's doing pretty much what I expected. Calling him a new FDR is an insult to FDR. Uh, he has a long way to go before he gets to that. And FDR had his problems too. And we're not even at the conversation stage uh, about those. So professor, um, it's, it's sort of to follow up on something you commented on there. Do do you think that the Republicans who have now gone right back to their deficit fear mongering, I mean, they did it in the Obama years and then in the Trump years, all of a sudden, no Republican had anything to say about the deficit because Trump was massively increasing the deficit. And then now we're right back to, oh, my God, what about the deficit because of Biden's you know, infrastructure plan and covid relief spending, so on and so forth. Do you think that Republican senators and politicians who push this deficit fear mongering, do they actually believe their own line of BS or do they know that they're using it cynically and they only trot it out when it's stuff for the people, but they never say anything when it's for the military or their priorities? Well, you know, I've asked myself the same question over the years. And when I've gotten to know some of the folks sitting in Congress, uh, I learned the answer, I think, to that question. And it's uh, partly one way and partly the other. Those that have some understanding, both of economic history and of the economic theory that governs all of this, are perfectly aware, uh, cynically aware, that they use it when it's convenient and they forget it when it's convenient. Uh, they know. They know exactly what they're doing. And when you ask them, gee, quite, how do you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning? They explain that's how politics is. Mm -hmm. And then the even more typical explanation, it's too complicated for my constituents to understand. And the shortcut way to get to the core issue is by saying what I'm saying. Uh, I find this condescending at best, uh, horrifically arrogant at worst. But then there are others, to answer your question honestly, who actually believe this. They are such political animals in the worst sense of the word that they don't like it if you bring up to them how they didn't say it at one point when their folks were doing it and now they're saying it again. They seem to think that deficits are of one kind if they do them and of a completely different kind if their political opponents do them. And when you try to explain it to them, and which I've done, even one-on-one, -on -one, their eyes glaze over because they're hearing something they don't want to have to process. So mm. I think maybe what's happening is 
when you needed to be believable, you'd trot out one of those Republicans who actually believes it, mm. and the other ones stay back because they have a harder time. They manage it, but they have a harder time uh, with a straight face when they talk like <laughs> that. What is your view of um, modern monetary theory? And, you know, this is wildly simplifying, but for people who don't know what that is, it's sort of an approach to economics that says, hey, we need to throw out this notion that the U.S. government is anything like a household budget that you have to balance. The real constraint on spending shouldn't be an arbitrary number of of the deficit or of the debt. It's really inflationary uh, pressure and ability to deploy those resources productively. That should be the constraint that you're looking at. Do you basically agree with that um, with that analysis, or do you dissent from that? No, I agree with the technical aspect because really, if you think about it, and if this doesn't get us too much into the weeds, We've always had a variation of that. In fact, we just go through a little ritual. When the government wants to spend more money, then it dares raise in taxes. And please underscore the word dares, Hmm. because there's not a problem in raising the taxes in any technical sense, in any financial sense. It's purely political. Do you, as a government, dare to make your society pay in taxes for what the government is asked to do? Our political system, which is no virtue of it, has politicians in this awkward position that the constituents, businesses on the one hand and the mass of people on the other, want all kinds of services, all kinds of benefits, but they don't want to pay for them. And the politician is supposed to make the magic happen that allows all of these things to be done supports for business, subsidies for business, fat contracts for the military, for the drug businesses and so on, without them having to pay taxes. And the same for the mass of people. They want all kinds of services and they don't want to pay taxes. So the politicians are put in an impossible situation, which they have resolved being practical men and women in the following way. Okay, we'll spend on all the things you want and we won't tax you, and we'll solve the problem by borrowing the money, you know, in in place of all of that. Now, for the mass of people, this is not very interesting. They're happy not to pay taxes, so they don't pay much attention, but they should, because the mass of people are not those to whom the government goes to borrow. The government can't borrow from the mass of people because they don't have anything to lend. Well, who does have money to lend to the government? Answer, the very corporations and the rich who have that money because the government isn't taxing them. So for them, the opportunity becomes, gee, I can lend the money to the government that the government might have otherwise taxed away away from me. And rather than be taxed, I now have the option of lending them the money. They will pay it all back to me in a few years, plus give me nice interest payments between now and then. If you're a rich person or a corporation, the way you look at it is, I have a choice to be taxed and lose it, end of story, or to have the government come and borrow it from me. And that is a no-brainer. So, of course, the corporate world and the rich prefer 
deficits by the government, because if the alternative is that they get taxed, this is easy. And, and that's part of what you have to understand as why we always have deficits. Last part of the story, and this will answer uh, Crystal's question. No sooner have the corporations and the rich lent money to the government and gotten in exchange government securities, we call them treasury bills, bonds, or uh, securities because of the length of time, that's all the difference is, as soon as they get those pieces of paper, those government IOUs, they go to the Federal Reserve and sell them to the Federal Reserve, thereby getting money back into their hands. The whole thing happens often in seconds or minutes. The money goes to the government, they get an IOU, and they cash it in for money. So that they're held harmless by all of this. The Federal Reserve monetizes, that's how we say it, the national debt, the deficit. And so money is increased in the system. And that's really all modern monetary theory really says is cut out the middleman. We don't need to go through this rigmarole of the government running a deficit, issuing an IOU, giving it to corporations and the rich who trade it back into another branch of government. Stop it, say the monetary, uh, modern monetary theorists. Just have the government print the money and use it and push it into the economy when they think that's appropriate by, by spending it for infrastructure, for housing, for whatever. And then if there's too much money, as we can see, if there's an inflation, well, then we'll tax it away from the society and pull it back into the government. So we will be, in the end, increasing and decreasing the money supply, as we always have done, but without this crazy indirection that has been hamstringing us in the past. I agree with all of that. That's technically uh, unobjectionable. But here is the problem. Will the Federal Reserve and the government, if they're merged or if we just have the government do all of this, will it have, here we go, the political will, the political power to tax the money back after they've pumped the money in? It's a lot easier to pump it in than to tax it out. So mm. number one, will they dare? There's lots of evidence that they won't or can't. And the second question, just as important, is if they think they can tax it back in, from whom will they right. tax it? The mass of people, the corporations, the rich. And then we get back to all the basic problems of capitalism in our time. Modern monetary theory is a small adjustment, but it doesn't solve all of those basic problems, which, to be fair to its proponents, they didn't claim it does. Yeah, that, that was a fascinating answer. And there's yeah. like 76 questions that I want to ask based <laughs> off that. So I'm going to try to narrow it down a little bit. But you reminded me of something that a very economics-minded friend of mine told me when we were having a discussion about MMT. And I thought it was very witty and like to the point. He said, public deficits equal private surpluses. And when he said that, that sort of clicked with me. And I realized, so that's why you see like with, you know, the COVID relief spending, it's a lot of money you're pumping into the economy. And then you're going to see, you know, positive effects from that, at least in the short term. Um, and 
to add to your point, there's also this interesting thing I learned about this, about Japan, where there have been a lot of like Austrian economics-minded people who've been predicting some debt crisis in Japan for a really long time, but it hasn't come. And it hasn't come, I guess the idea is because the MMT folks have a point, where if you have a sovereign currency and you control your own currency, then who cares if you, you know, have a have a big deficit as long as there's not like massive political instability then you probably can stave off inflation but anyway to get to my question um this is definitely in the weeds but i'm curious your answer to it how does standard keynesian economics differ from modern monetary theory because i see a lot of disagreement between the two camps and but that surprises me because i feel like they nominally agree on a lot of things they do agree on a lot of things. The people who do modern monetary theory, uh, which includes several of my friends, Stephanie Kelton and others that I know of and have worked with, uh, I have a radio and TV show, Stephanie's been on my show, things like that, they come out of what you might call the left wing of the Keynesian uh, tradition. Uh, they, are, they are an extension, if you like, taking it another step. Uh, the Keynesian tradition, as soon as Keynes wrote his book back in 30, 1936, in the depths of the Depression, the minute that book came out, you had not only criticisms of it, but you had splits within the Keynesian camp, a left wing and a right wing. The left wing was interested in the overlap between Keynes and Marx. Mm -hmm. And the right wing was frightened by that very overlap and so went the other way. I remember when I was a graduate student learning all of this, because when I was a graduate student in the United States, Keynesian economics was the dominant tradition uh, in all the major graduate training programs. My teachers were overwhelmingly Keynesians. And you could see very quickly in the classroom who was the left-wing Keynesian and who was the right-wing Keynesian. And the modern monetary theory is the left-wing taking another step to be critical of how the right-wing used Keynes for its own purposes. And I think that that more than anything else could clarify the overlaps between modern monetary theory. The difference, again, is what I stressed before. Keynes assumed that the deficit would have to be funded by government borrowing and that that could then be monetized by what he called the central bank, which is what the Federal Reserve is for the United States. So he assumed all of that. And now the modern monetary theory explains you don't have to. You could have a more direct relate, and that opens up new possibilities and so on. Part of the motivation, though, is the political one with which you began today's discussion, which is the modern monetary theory wants to go even further than Keynes did. Keynes's left-wing uh, branch was always disgusted by hesitance about the deficit. Of course, there should be a deficit. If there's not enough demand in the society from the private sector, then the government has to make up that difference because then the government is providing the demand to the private sector that it does not provide to itself. It is a perfect example that Keynes is telling the system, here's how capitalism saves itself from itself mm. by having the government compensate for the failure of the private. Modern monetary theory 
could not agree more and takes the further step, there shouldn't be a deficit in the first place. We don't need one. And that will take away the argument that is using it to block the possibility of capitalism saving itself. And do you see any worrying signs about inflation? Because that's and correct me if I'm wrong here, what MMT would say is the check on how much you should be printing and spending is when you start to see inflation rise, that's an indication that too many resources are going and they're not able to be used productively. Do you see any worrying signs in that regard? And also, did I get that correct? You got it correct. Uh, the only thing I would adjust, well, let me answer the last part of your question. Yes, I see worrying signs, not the way the right wing does. I see worrying signs because we don't agree, you, me, the, the economics profession or the society, we don't agree on what an inflation exactly is or what an appropriate measure of it is. We act in our conversations as if we all know and all agree that there is or isn't one. That's not correct. There are enormous debates and they've existed for a long time about the measures that are used, the appropriateness, the accuracy, and everything else. And let me give you a very concrete example. I would argue that over the time that we've been running massive government deficits, basically the last 10 years since the crash of 2008 and 9, uh, and even more so now, but for all that 10-year period, there has been an inflation. That's what's been going on in the stock market, because an enormous portion of the money printed and added has not gone into the quote unquote real economy, producing goods and services of an everyday sort. And there's no mystery why, because we didn't have sufficient demand to make that a rational behavior for our capitalists and not going to borrow money, expand the capacity to produce because they're having trouble selling what they've already been uh, able to produce. There's no point in expanding capacity uh, except in a few isolated industries. So the, where's the money going to go? If you borrow from the Federal Reserve, especially when they make it so attractive uh, by making it easy and by making interest rates next to zero, every corporation in America is borrowing like there's no tomorrow because they've never seen money this easy and this cheap. Every problem any corporation is having producing the wrong good, having chosen the wrong technology, being struggling with their workers in ways that they're not working out real well. Whatever the problem corporate America has had for a decade, the easiest, quickest, and cheapest way to solve it, borrow money from the Federal Reserve, which is printing it like crazy, and will lend it to you for barely above zero rate of interest, which is why corporate debt is at a crazy level which is why right now, in this crazy economy, corporations that have tons of cash on their own balance sheets are continuing to borrow, simply using the money to buy back shares in the stock market, mm. which further boosts the price of shares. Mm. So we have an inflation, but it is limited to the stock market. And why is that a matter of concern? I'm a Marxist, so you won't be surprised. When you do that, you make the inequality of capitalism gargantuan. That's what we have. 
the enormous incomes and wealth of people like, I don't know, Jeffrey Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or any of the others, that's all about the stock market's inflation. They're sitting on portfolios that simply go up. And the Federal Reserve knows exactly that one of the consequences of its monetary policy for many years has been to exacerbate the inequality in our society. I was a classmate at Yale getting my PhD with Janet Yellen. She and I took the same courses in macroeconomics from the same professor at the same time. Hmm. I know exactly what she and I were taught, and that was exactly that one of the problems, our teacher was a man named James Tobin, a Nobel Prize winning macroeconomist in those days at Yale. He explained to us, because he was a le little bit left Keynesian himself, he explained to us that one of the problems here with this kind of monetary policy is that it exacerbates inequality. He was worried at a time when the inequality was way less than what it is now. And for me, it is the most dangerous dimension for capitalism that it is producing a level of inequality by these mechanisms that's even more dangerous than having the conditions they think they're fixing by this policy. Mm. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, you know, it. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that it, it sounds like a scam to just socialize the balance sheets of corporations, and that's what we've been doing for a while. We have the bailouts for corporations, and we have crumbs yep. for regular people. And also, you brought up stock buybacks there. It's my understanding that they were illegal until, like, the 1980s, and Reagan changed that. And since that, you know, it's been a mess. Um, <laughs> to pivot a little bit, I want to ask you, what is— I'm, I'm a, a big defender of Scandinavian-style st social democracy. And so I want to ask you, what's the difference between Scandinavian-style social democracy and, like, Cuban-style communism, and what does each one get right and wrong? Good. Uh, I love the question, because what it allows me to do is to explain to people something which they would have understood had we not had the taboo of the last 70 years on everything having to do with socialism and communism, so that it, it was imperative for people's careers and political lives uh, to act as if it were all one big collection of unambiguously bad things, and one didn't have to worry about the differences among them or anything else. Socialism is a global tradition. Socialists exist in every country on this planet, uh, socialist newspapers, socialist political parties, socialist governments. If a movement called socialism in 150 years, which is about how old it is, uh, spreads that fast on a global scale, it means it is entering political worlds, cultural worlds, economic worlds that are radically different. And they're going to interpret the socialist tradition, the socialist texts, the socialist experiences, uh, the works of the major theorists like Marx and others in radically different ways. The point is socialism comes in a variety of forms, just like capitalism does. You know, the capitalism of, of France is not what it is in Gabon. And the Argentinian isn't like the Saudi Arabian. They all have capitalism, but they understand and work it differently. Okay, now to answer your question. The socialist 
systems of Europe, Western Europe and Scandinavia. And I call them socialist because they do. And there is no central agency that issues a certificate as to who qualifies for this label and not. So mm -hmm. I'm not here to tell you this one is right or wrong. I'm to tell you that there are three main variants these days. And one of them is this Scandinavian. And here's what it means. Capitalism continues. They understand that. Private enterprises interacting in markets uh, privately owned, with the enterprises structured in the typical way, with an owner at the top or shareholders at the top, and a board of directors that gets in control of everything in the basic corporate form, and then a mass of employees. Everyone gets that. What makes them call themselves socialists and I can go through the history of why this happened, but what makes them call themselves socialist is that they advocate and institute a very comprehensive governmental intervention in this capitalist system. The premise is that if you don't do that, not only will there be un socially unacceptable inequality and socially unacceptable business cycles otherwise known as boom-bust cycles, but you will have a whole host of unwanted social consequences, culminating in so much antipathy that the capitalism itself will be rejected. Mm. So the socialists argue, we advocate a minimum wage, a public health service, a, a free educational system at, at throughout, uh, right through to higher education. We want to do all these things because we believe that a decent society is this combination of capitalism sort of at the micro level, if you like, and then a socialized government limit and control over everything, the market, the private enterprise, the freedom of the owners to dictate what goes on and so on, that is limited and controlled by the government. And that's a kind of socialism that has been fought for by socialist movements in Europe and won by them. You know, in France, for example, it's the law which was fought for and achieved by the socialists that the minute you go to work after you graduate high school or college, you must be given by your employer every year five full weeks of paid vacation. Mm. Okay, that's what they fought for. That's what they have. Right now in Portugal, another country, there's a government that was elected in 2016. It's a three-party coalition government. And I only mention it because so many Americans are unaware of what I'm about to tell you. The lead party of the three is the Portuguese Socialist Party. The number two is the Portuguese Communist Party. And the number three is the Portuguese Green Party. That's what governs uh, Portugal and won the election in 2016, was re-elected last year. They're very successful, very popular, etc., etc. The second kind, a different kind of socialism, believes that the first kind is insufficient. Hmm. In other words, regulating and controlling still leaves so much discretion so many loopholes, so many evasive strategies available to private capitalists 
that they can weasel out of what you're trying to accomplish with your regulation, and that therefore the government has to take a further step, namely to displace the private owners of capitalist enterprises so that the state can itself become the owner and operator of the enterprises, if not all of them, then a major part, called, by the way, in this literature, the commanding heights of the economy, you know, steel and, and, and basic things like that. Um, and then they argue and they vary in that. But, but those kinds of socialists really got going in and through the Russian Revolution in 1917, because the Soviet Revolution did that. It took over industry. And that split the socialist movement between those who wanted to do what we now call Scandinavian or Western European socialism versus those who wanted to follow the Soviet model. The latter group split and gave themselves a new name. These socialists were then renamed communists. And that's what split the socialist movement everywhere in the world, including the United States. Mm. That's when the United States Communist Party was born, 1920, 1921, uh, out of that split of the former Socialist Party. And that happened all over the world. Now, the last and third major kind, which is where I belong, it's a socialism that reflects critically on those first two. Mm. It finds things it likes, in Scandinavian socialism and things it likes in Soviet-style socialism. But it also finds things it doesn't like. The focus on the state, which th strikes us as being overdone, being dangerous because a state given that much economic power is in danger of snatching a lot of political and cultural power. And we know where that leads and we do not want to reproduce that. We want to learn from the early Soviet and Chinese experiments in socialism, what we like and want to do more and what we don't like and want never to repeat. So the focus of this third kind of socialism, which is rising in proportion to the other two uh, shrinking these days, is a focus not on the macro level, but on the micro level. Mm. It's an argument that says, with all of the discussion of what the government should or shouldn't do, there was a horrific lack of attention to addressing the problems of the capitalist micro level. And by that is meant the internal organization of enterprises. And I would argue to you that the 21st century socialism emerging quickly now and reaching dominance, I would suggest, within this decade is a movement for socialism that says, if we don't change the base, the enterprise, the workplace, mm -hmm. where most adults spend most of their lives at work, if we don't change that in a socialist direction, all projects of socialism socially will not succeed because they're missing a foundation.
And all that that means is bring democracy to the workplace. No more tiny group of people, minority, the owner, the board of directors, making all the decisions and excluding the majority from any participation. There's no accountability of the director of a corporation to the mass of his or her employees to change that to democratize that, to say that democracy is a value not just in the residential community where we live, but in the workplace that we give so much of ourselves to, that's where socialism is going, and that's a place where the mass of people will begin to see, I suspect, what is possible and what maybe ought to be the next system after capitalism. What gives you confidence that that model is on the rise? And tell us a little bit about some of the successful experiments or reforms or societies that are moving in this direction. Well, the reason I'm confident about it, it has less to do with socialism than it has to do with capitalism. In my judgment, capitalism is in very deep trouble, and capitalism in the United States especially so. Capitalism is a system which, as Marx wrote so brilliantly, is a system premised on uneven development. It doesn't develop evenly. It moves like primitive people moved from one area where they could graze their cattle to another. As soon as the grass was uh, eaten by their cows, they had to move the cows someplace else. Capitalism goes to where the profits are high. And when those profits aren't as high as they were, or when another place offers better profits, they leave for the greener pastures, literally. You know, in this country, we look at the history of a place like Detroit, spectacularly successful in 1970, a population of two million people, a place to which American presidents brought foreign visitors. Look at our factories. Look at the lovely homes that working class people in those factories can afford to live in. Look at a thriving union, the UAW. Look at the fact that even African Americans, so long denied opportunity, are able to find work in the auto factories. And now look at it today. The population of Detroit today isn't 2 million. It's 700,000. More than half the people of Detroit were driven out. The most profound collapse imaginable mm -hmm. in a few decades. Here's my argument. When capitalism does that, especially on a national scale, which is how I understand the exodus of American businesses to India, to China, to Brazil, still going on and resisting all efforts of all administrations to do much about it, including this one. It's the decline of capitalism that turns people to socialism, number one. Number two, the other two socialisms, the Scandinavian one, but especially the, the communist one, have been so vilified for 75 years, so demonized across the world, but especially in the United States, that we have an armature of real and imagined criticisms of those societies, and they have plenty to be critical of in those societies. But between what they're genuinely guilty of and what hysterical denunciations have been normal, 
those kinds of socialism have all kinds of problems penetrating the American consciousness. But the one I'm talking about is one that has not been demonized because it hasn't entered the consciousness of the American anti-socialist population. Therefore, it's possible to talk to people about changing the organization of enterprise. It's possible to give them the examples I'm about to describe to you and for them to get excited about them. So let me give you that example, the best one. And there are many, but I'm going to pick you the biggest one. It's in Spain. It's called the Mondragon uh, Cooperative Corporation, based in a small city in the north of Spain, Mondragon. This uh, enterprise started in 1956 when a Roman Catholic priest, Father Arismendi by name, in that city uh, gave a speech to his parish. And he said, if we wait a very, very poor section of uh, Spain, Spain was a very poor country then, and the northern part of Spain was a poor part of that poor country. Uh, he said, if we wait for an employer to come here and give us jobs, we will all die of old age before it happens. Everybody giggles. And then he draws the conclusion, this priest, let's become our own employer. Let's not wait for an employer. Let's set up what we would now call a worker co-op. He does that. 1956, the priest and six workers. Now fast forward to today. This is a corporation that's now a holding company. It's a family of about 200 worker co-ops in manufacturing, in uh, agriculture, in uh, services. It has over 100,000 employees. It's the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. But it is a family of worker co-ops. In each of these co-ops, not in all of the sectors of this enterprise, because it's a complicated enterprise, but the majority of its constituent co-ops, the workers make the decisions democratically. They dis together decide how much each person's going to get paid, what kind of product they're going to make, what technology they're going to use, where the production is going to take place. For example, most of them have decided that they don't want a gap between the best and the lowest paid worker to be more than eight to one. They don't pay everybody the same, but mm. they limit it to an eight to one ratio. Just to remind your audience, in the United States, a CEO of a major corporation gets around 300 times what the lowest paid worker in that corporation gets. So they have constricted, they have contracted inequality in a dramatically successful way. To grow from six to 100,000 over the last 60 years or so is an extraordinary achievement that would make every other capitalist corporation or nearly every other one jealous by comparison. Two American corporations have been so taken with the success not only of the Mondragon Corporation, but of its R&D laboratories where they develop new products and new techniques that those two American corporations purchased the opportunity for their scientists to go over there and work alongside Mondragon's scientists in Mondragon's labs. And the names of those two corporations in America are General Motors and Microsoft. So hmm. they're confident 
that the average American uh, intelligent, interested person doesn't know a lot of this, well, we both know what the problems in this society are with understanding that. Here in the United States, there is a United States Federation of Worker Co-ops that links together hundreds of them, thousands of them across America that exist. And we've had worker co-ops since the time of American colonial, the, the colonies here in the United States. Uh, often they were associated in the early days with religious organizations. The Shakers, some of you know about them, they do beautiful furniture, they're an old part of American colonial life, but they organized worker co-ops, that's how they worked. Uh, so it's an old concept, it has its roots in American history. One last example. I have sometimes sent people to a province in Italy called Emilia Romagna, it's around Bologna in the northern part of Italy. And I send them there because this is an economy that is 60% capitalist enterprises and 40% worker co-ops. It has been that way for decades. The people in that region want it that way. They like to have the choice between them. There's an interesting, successful community of worker co-ops that you can see in action and you can see both the symbiotic and the antagonistic moments in the relationships between the worker co-ops and the capitalist industries. But there is no reason to think about the democratization of the enterprise as some vague, distant, utopian dream. It's a reality. It's been a reality for a long time. In Mondragon, they have their own university called the Mondragon University, where they teach courses in how to run a worker co-op, how to finance a worker co-op, how to deal with interpersonal difficulties in a democratized enterprise. All of these things have courses, uh, curricula, reading lists. I've been there, I've been part of it. All of this is a reality that I think suggests that as capitalism's problems deepen, there will be a growing interest in an alternative. And the one most accessible and most open for Americans will be this third kind of socialism that emphasizes that. So, I mean, here's one thing that worker co-ops would definitely stop outsourcing because people aren't going to vote to outsource their Absolute. own jobs. So that's, that's just one example of something that popped to mind. So I have uh, two questions here. The first one's quick. The second one's uh, a little deeper. But So the third version of socialism that you described, the basically the intellectual and economic tradition that you subscribe to, what would you call it? Would you call it market socialism, libertarian socialism? How do you refer to it? No, I would I would stay away from market and libertarian uh, uh, almost as though they were hot stoves that I want to touch. <laughs> um, so is it democracy I mean, at work? Did you just say democracy at work? Yeah, that's what we do. We, we talk about the democracy at work. And one of the things that democratic decisions would have to reach is how are you going to interact right. one worker co-op with another and worker co-ops in general with the consuming public. And you might wanna choose markets. You might wanna choose other systems of distributing your product. Or you might, which I would suspect, do a bit of a mix and match. Decide which areas you think are better served by a market exchange and which areas are better served not. 
And by the way, the reason I'm confident that that will work is that we do that already. We make a decision in the United States, for example. Uh, I live in New York City. In New York City, a great deal of, of stuff is done by market exchange. But when I want to go to Central Park, which is the most beautiful park we have in this city, uh, I walk into Central Park. I don't pay anybody anything. It's not a market exchange. The society as a whole maintains that park. And anyone, citizen or not, taxpayer or not, visitor or native, he's in there and bring a blanket and take a sandwich and have a picnic. You do it if, when, how you want to. There is no market quid pro quo exchange because that's how we want our markets. Just like when we take a family on a picnic, some of us make the chicken and others of us bring the potato chips, but we don't buy and sell these things from to one another. We distribute them with another set of rules about what's appropriate, what's fair, what should go to the children, what should go to the elderly. We have cultural ways of distribution we don't need and we don't want market exchange. And I would guess in a socialist society based on the democratic enterprise that they would come up with their distinctive mix of market and non-market um, mechanisms of distribution. So do you see value in uh, a distinction and differentiating between small business and big business? Because I like everything you're saying. I just feel like the bigger the business, the more, as a matter of principle, it makes sense to dem democratically own it and democratically make decisions. If somebody has a very small business where they have two or three people or four people working for them and somebody's a kid who's 17 years old on summer vacation, should the kid who's 17 years old come in and start have the same amount of power as the person who invested their time, money, effort, came up with the idea, so on and so forth? No, you know, I don't think so. And I can tell you that different co-ops, because we have the history and because they're empirical realities, different co-ops have handled these kinds of issues differently. For example, some co-ops have what's called a probation period. It may apply in some cases only to youngsters in the, in the example you gave. It may also apply in general to any new person coming in to join the workforce, that you need a period of time, six months or whatever it may be, uh, for the co-op as a whole to look at you and you to look at it and to see whether this is a good fit, whether everybody's comfortable with, with one another uh, before you become a regular member. Uh, then there are also arrangements in which, for example, if you bring to the co-op a level of skill training, well, then you may be given different responsibilities or different amounts of pay than another person who doesn't bring those things. And, and the experience is that that works perfectly well, that the collective of people can come up with a very rational discussion and debate. And, you know, let me just stress, the arguments against democratizing communities, against having a democratic universal suffrage system, were all the arguments that are now brought to bear against doing that in the enterprise. The arguments against universal suffrage is, I am a professor, I study, I know better what's going on than the average, uh, I don't know, cab driver who doesn't have the time or the edge. And we said, no, stop. Yes, there are differences, but we can work out 
a way to give us democracy and universal suffrage that takes some account of the differences, but holds on to a certain powerful level of equality. Yeah. And we overcame well, the arguments. And I think the same arguments are resurfacing because people are nervous about, if I could be so bold, getting rid of the kings. You know, we got rid of the ones with the guillotine in that way, but they didn't disappear. Nope. They snuck around and entered the business world right. where they sit as CEOs pretty much in the same position and therefore subject to the same uh, the same basic critiques. And right. I, if I could add if I could add a word about why it's not libertarian, it's also because I understand the co-respectivity. A worker co-op exists in a community. It has obligations to that community. The decisions a company, a, a worker co-op make that impact the community mean that the community has to have a democratic role and vice versa. They'll have to be very carefully worked out, shared, co-determined democracies between the residential location and the workplace location. And that's part of what a de democratization of the enterprise includes. There's none of this um, misquoting, if I may say so, of Adam Smith, that if we all pursue our self-interest by some magic, it'll work out to be the best for everybody. That's a rationalization for selfishness, which is not consistent with what I'm talking about. I think we should call it like apple pie, red, white, and blue, founding fathers, amazingness for all or something like that so that we can, we can get it through. <laughs> um, but, you know, you get it. One of, one of a, what I think is actually a core barrier to moving towards the type of system that you're talking about and that exists in certain pockets of the country already is that a lot of Americans actually have a very dim view of human nature. You know, they would think that what you're saying is utopian because people are fundamentally sort of greedy and selfish. That's why capitalism works, because it exploits their natural tendencies towards greed and hoarding and competition and survival of the fittest and all of that. So I think that's that's one of the sort of psychological barriers we have to overcome. And of course, it's no accident that we have those views throughout so much of the population because there's basically been, you know, information warfare <laughs> causing people to have those views in a lot of ways, even when they don't act like it within their own lives or within their own families or communities. So I'd love for you to reflect on that. And I know you have to go. So this is probably the last question we can get in with you, even though we could spend hours and hours. But also give us a sense of you know, our, our laws that have incentives to move towards co-ops, is that enough? Do you have to have a little bit more of a direct and heavy-handed approach? What are your thoughts on how to, how to move in the direction that you'd like to see? Very quickly, you're absolutely right. We, we come out of three or four centuries of capitalism that has shaped the way we all think, you, me, and everybody else, and that will present both opportunities, but also obstacles to a transition. That was true in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, from slavery to feudalism, from every transition that the human race has gone through. But we can take a certain comfort from the fact that every economic system that we have any record of historically, primitive tribal arrangements, clan arrangements, village economy, slavery, feudalism, every single one of them was born, evolved over time, and then died and passed away 
in favor of a different one. So the transitions have been accomplished. The adjustment of people's thinking and culture did happen. And I don't believe there's any reason to doubt that it can and will happen again. But conceptions of human nature as fundamentally negative or greedy or envious, uh, those are part of the inheritance that will, ha that will have to be um, struggled about uh, and struggled for. Could you just remind me of the second the, the second question you asked? So to move towards the system that you would like to uh -huh. see, democracy right. at work, is it just we need to put some incentives in place and people will move in that direction, or does it need to be a little bit more direct and heavy-handed? I would I would balk at the heavy-handed part, but yes, I think the there would have term. to be incentives. I think there would have to be subsidies. But let me justify why I think there should be incentives. We recognize in our society that uh, it's appropriate to give low interest loans uh, to small businesses to help them compete against big ones. It's a social value to have small business. I, for example, support it. I'm glad we have the SBA, the Small Business Administration, that provides all kinds of incentives and subsidies and supports for small businesses to enable them to compete against the monsters. We do the same for women, uh, businesses run by women, uh, for businesses run by uh, African Americans, other minorities, and so on. We think these are social values and we give them a help. I think it's a social value to allow there to be an honest, open competition between capitalist hierarchical enterprises and democratic worker co-ops. I think we'd all be better off if we could see how they look, how they work, what it feels like to be employed in one, what the differences are in the quality of what comes out of them. And in order to have that experience, if you allow me, in order for there to be genuine freedom of choice in America between where you work and where you shop, capitalist or worker co-op, we would have to create a worker co-op sector. And the government is the logical way to make that happen. And it's as it should be, because for our entire history, the government of the United States has given capitalists every conceivable incentive, cost plus profit contracts for the military industrial complex, basically free research in universities made available at dirt cheap prices to the private sector. And I could go on, you know them. So all I'm asking for is that the same network of tax rebates, subsidies, supports, and helps and incentives be given to a different kind of work organization so that we can get quickly to the point where the American people can vote about what kind of mix of enterprise organizations they might want. That would be freedom of choice, and that would be a kind of democracy we do not have now, and that socialists will be on the forefront of advocating for the United States over the foreseeable future. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much. Tell everybody where they can find uh, your wonderful show and your books and everything you're working on. Thank you. That's very kind of you. We have a website where you can find literally everything we do. It's got a simple name, democracyatwork.com. 
dot info. You go there and you can find the weekly radio and television show we produce. Uh, you can find the podcasts we produce, the books we publish, all of that kind of thing. And everything we do is up on YouTube, either under the name Democracy at Work or under the name of the weekly radio and TV show, which is called Economic Update. Professor Wolf, great to see you, sir. Thank you so much. We're so grateful for your time. Real pleasure. And thank you. And thank you very much, because these kinds of conversations that you produce are absolutely invaluable to moving us in the direction of democratic choices that we need, that we want, and that I think we can move forward to safely. All right. So that was Professor Richard Wolf. Um, I love the guy. I think we could have talked to him for like four hours. Um, I, I think learned I a could lot. Talk to him for literally forever. Uh, yeah, I learned. <laughs> I learned a lot. I had no idea that there was like a, a right wing faction and a left wing faction within Keynesianism. Yeah, I thought Keynesianism was sort of a monolith, but it's not. I learned from, just. I learned that from him. It's like something I learned from Chomsky. I didn't know there were statist and non-statist versions of leftism, but from Chomsky, I learned there are statist and non-statist versions of leftism. So, in other words. You could be a leftist in the sense that you want like a powerful federal type government, or you could be a leftist in the sense that you want something a little more close to home, like a state size or even a localized thing, or like Richard Wolff is big on democracy in the workplace, which is another layer removed, you yeah. know, of organization. But anyway, I just thought, I think he's a fascinating guy. I think he's incredibly knowledgeable. And um, yeah, I mean, it's great that even you and I were learning quite a bit there, and we're supposed to be like experts on this stuff, you know? He's ex an extremely clear thinker mm -hmm. and an extremely clear articulator of thoughts. Yeah. He's also um, become like wildly popular. Totally. I mean, it's his moment. He, he it's his might moment. be the most requested guest that we've had from the v moment we launched the show. Yeah. We've had tons of, when are you going to have Professor Wolf on? Every time we have him on Rising, people are super excited because I think he has. Um, I think part of why people really respond to him is because there's this very clear sense that the shit that we've been doing Doesn't here work. and around the world, it's broken, mm -hmm. right? Even a lot of sort of mainstream figures recognize like this thing is kind of run its course. We got to do something to keep the wheels on the train or else we're going to end up in a very ugly place. Um, that's not going to be good for anyone. And he has a very clear idea of where we should go and what it should look like. And I like the way that he frames it, something that Professor Harvey Kay does as well. He really grounds his ideas about democracy at work in an American tradition, not yeah. like, look, he's going to talk about Mondragon. He's going to talk about... Well, we asked him about that. ...about yeah. Italy. He's going to talk about examples around the world. But... He also frames it in an American context. So it's not like we're taking these foreign ideas and we're bringing them home. Maybe that shouldn't matter. But in terms of actually making it politically palatable, what he offers and what he believes in actually feels very attainable. It doesn't feel crazy. It doesn't feel utopian. You can imagine how we could get from here to a space where not every business is a co-op, but where you have a thriving co-op sector in competition with market-based enterprises and see who does better, see who people gravitate towards. We, again, I wish we had more time with him because he would have, if we asked him, he would have given us everything you wanted to know about FDR. He would have told you everything about every policy he implemented. He knows all that stuff. So mm. that, anyway, that's to comment on your American tradition point that he yeah. grounds this stuff in an American tradition. He knows just as much about the New Deal and everything that went on with that as he does about, you know, 
the places he just talked about, you know? So he's just, he's got so much knowledge. And to your point about how he's a very clear thinker about this stuff. Yeah. That really matters. And especially, I feel like that's a big thing to me too, where I don't like sophists. I don't like people who go off on their tangent Mm -hmm. and they're all Mm -hmm. over the place and then they try to round it out and come back and it's like, it barely makes sense if it makes sense at all. And then if you don't get it, somehow it's your fault. Right. You know what I mean? I hate that. His thing can be summed up with just the following words. Democracy at work. That's it. Like everything he talks about, it just comes back to that. And I love the fact that it's really easy to grasp. You can agree or disagree with it. But the guy's got arguments for his positions. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And he, a lot of his answers weren't what I expected. Like I expected when I asked him about, is there a distinction between small business and big business? And maybe it makes sense to have worker co-ops when you have a business with like, you know, over 100 employees, I get that. But do you really want like some small deli that's got like three people working there and one person works seven hours, the other one works 60 hours a week? Should they really be equal in the decision-making process? And he's basically like, no. Like part of democracy at work is like you can democratically decide to allocate more power to the boss. You know what I mean? He's got the combination of a fully fleshed out theoretical framework matched up with an on the ground practical Boom. reality. That's it. That's you nailed extraordinarily it. rare. Right. Extraordinarily rare. So he can point to those specific examples and how they worked it out. So it's not like him just sort of yeah. freestyling of what he imagines might work. He's actually been there. He's talked to the people and he knows exactly how it might be able to work. He's he's a problem for the people who think there's no pragmatic leftists and leftists only live in the world of like theory and He's really the solution to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what were some of the areas? Because I know you had a lot of areas you oh, wanted to get into. Totally. And, I mean, he's one of those where when you start going in a certain direction in the conversation, you just want to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper on that topic. Yeah. So there were a bunch of questions that I had prepared for him because usually, you know, my style coming into this stuff is I like to sit down for maybe an hour a little beforehand and just whatever comes to me that I would really want to ask the person and I jot him down. So some of the stuff I wanted to ask him, I guess I'll just ask you and we could talk about some of these. <laughs> um, so that's a major downgrade from being able no. to ask Professor Wolf about it. <laughs> Listen, don't sell yourself short, okay? Um, so I was going to ask him, do, instead of thinking about taxes like we're taxing somebody to pay for X mm. because we were talking about how that's not necessarily the case, especially in modern monetary theory. I was going to ask him if wealth by its nature, extreme wealth by its nature corrupts democracy, mm. because that's always been my view is that yeah. when somebody has too much wealth, then they almost by default have the ability to like buy the political system. I think he kind of answered that actually so? in his discussion of your, your, you asked him the question about the difference between, you know, a Cuba or Soviet style type of socialism and a Scandinavian type of socialism. And his critique of the Scandinavian style socialism is it kind of has the seeds of its own destruction there because while you're allowing the owner class to still do their thing, they're going to be capable of gaming the system, rigging the system, getting too much control of government. So my my view is yes. And I suspect that based on his answer there and, and what we know about his ideology in general, I would certainly think that his answer would be yes as well. It's funny because I don't even necessarily agree with that because if you craft the rules effectively, you can make it so that it you know, there is no such thing as private donations in the political system. And so you can't have the wealthy people buy the system. Yeah. But you also have to have hard, very... Though, because of you course have to it's hard, but it's hard in any system. Yeah, I know. But you have to think of, like, too, because part of what 
corrupts our system so thoroughly isn't just the campaign contributions. In fact, I would argue that's not even the bulk of it. It's they're all in the club together and members of Congress, elected officials at whatever level, the president, they want to go after they do their public service and they want to be employed by these people. And so there's a relationship there. Actually, there was new reporting from, I think, David Sorota. Other people got leaked audio from Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin going and talking to the National Restaurant Association. Look, that's in part because they're getting campaign checks from them. But they're also thinking about, oh, after I'm out of the Senate, then what am I going to do? So you have to shut it down in like every single way. And you have to kill like the bonds of the club. That's the other example I would give. Um, I think we probably both covered because it was so insane. The George W. Bush whining about mm-hmm. like misinformation. <laughs> the guy who lied us into war. Well, why does he get that softball interview? Why is it? that he can say something so just like brazenly outrageous when you're the dude that literally killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and like overturned an entire region based on lies. How is that able to happen? Well, Hoda is interviewing him. His daughter works at the Today Show. They're all in the same club. So she's not getting a campaign contribution. She's not going to go work for George W. Bush, but she's protecting elite power because she's part of the club. So I'm just saying it's harder to cut down on that, like the owner class still being able to rig the system, still being able to tilt things in their favor, than just like if we craft the right rules and regulations and enforce them properly, that will help. But I'm not sure that it's a cure-all. But I, okay, but if you're going to make that argument, it's easy to say nothing's a cure-all. It's going to be even harder to abolish any semblance of like people at the top of society, even in a even in a situation where we have democracy at work. There are going to be some people who make the most money. Because like he said, they had an eight to one pay disparity. Yeah. So then the elites all of a sudden become the CEOs with the eight to one pay disparity as opposed to the 300 to one pay disparity. So by that logic, there's always going to be some people who are like the elites of society. And I would argue, I just think it's it's too sloppy thinking to say, to like throw your hands up and say, well, social democracy has the seeds of its own demise. Therefore, it's like just as bad as, as what we have well, here. I it's like, say, no, I, no, I, no, you I didn't definitely say didn't say that. <laughs> no, okay. You didn't say that, but... It's not even close. Like it's they're eons better, and I the the fact that problems still exist in that system doesn't mean you throw out the system. It means you address the problems in that system. Right. That's well, what I'm saying. And, and part of part of what works better about that system is that you lessen those disparities. So back to your original question of whether like massive amounts of wealth inherently corrupt what you're helping to do is sort of constrain the bounds of just how well extraordinarily wealthy people can that's everything and so like you know in this country like jeff bezos richest man on the planet nearly 200 billion dollars he has so much power over so many aspects of our lives and just to name one of them like the labor market i mean they hired i think half a million workers at amazon just what he decides to do vis-a-vis his own workers sets more of the standards for our entire labor market than, I don't want to say than anything the government does, but he has extraordinarily power in that space. I saw this week, I think it's uh, 50% of, it's like half of all department stores have closed in like the past 10 years and the other remaining ones, half of them are going to close in the next five years. That's not exactly right, but it was something close to that. Again, that's all Amazon. You can look at Bill Gates, who many people would see as sort of like less nefarious. 
he has massive control over over public health globally. A big part of the reason why there's such resistance to getting rid of the patent protection that keeps prices high, pharmaceutical prices high, and keeps supply artificially low is because that's what Bill Gates wants. I don't want to lay it all at his feet. There's a lot of complicating factors there. But when you have people who have that level of extraordinary wealth, yeah, it's very hard to keep it from corrupting, which is why it's important to constrain the, you know, the incredible heights that billionaires can rise to and the amount of money and wealth and power they can amass. So just real quick, my solutions to that issue of extreme wealth corrupting democracy by its very nature, mm-hmm. it minor the most straightforward things you could possibly come up with, which is massive redistributive policies that yeah. effectively ban tax anybody them. from being a billionaire. Just tax them a lot. Why not cap it? We have minimum <laughs> wage. Why not have maximum net worth of $999 million so yeah. nobody can be a billionaire? And if you think, oh, that's not enough or whatever, if I give you $999 million, are you really going to fucking complain? Right. Are you really going to complain about that? Uh, the other thing I'd say is, I actually disagree with you slightly about one thing. You were like, well, it's not really... The money, the money in the system is not the main issue. I do think it's the main issue. I think it's... You mean the campaign contributions? Yes, the campaign contributions. I think that's basically everything. I think Jeff Bezos can de facto own the United States government. You know, that's, that's the problem. And so you have to ban the money in politics and do, do um, clean elections, which is a public financing system, ban all private donations. I would also ban the revolving door. People aren't mm-hmm. going to like this one, but you brought up a good point, which is like... There's a problem there where they're just waiting to get to the next step where they can go get mm-hmm. paid on Wall Street or wherever it may mm-hmm. be. My answer, and again, people are not going to like this, but it would actually work. Number one, pay the politicians more. Pay them more, but also ban the revolving door so they can get a pension when they retire and they yeah. get it for the rest of their lives. But beyond that, honestly, I would treat corruption as if it's as bad as murder. Mm. I think politicians who are guilty of corruption should basically be locked up for life. And would you you would probably also have more stringent rule because right now it's very hard to prove corruption. Would you oh, make it? No, no, no. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. The way it works now is insane. Yeah. Where you basically have be to like, exchange yeah. a bag yeah, of you cash. You have to be, be like, like, I will now go do this I am do doing corruption thing. with you. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's it's <laughs> have it ridiculous. Have on tape and then still totally. it's going to be questionable. So you have to you have to change that. Yeah, I, I actually agree with um, most of that. I don't actually think you need to raise the salary. I think the salary is quite high already and perfectly fine. Um, but I would people like. But a pension when they retire that goes yes. on. Yeah. People should actually think of this job as public, public service. Public service, exactly. Not as like, I'm going to cash in. Think of what we ask our men and women in uniform to sacrifice, right? Just think of then that they come sacrifice. Home and they're fucking homeless. And then compare that to politicians who have this just entitled expectation that they're going to be part of the American overclass in every single way. Well, look, if you are a member of Congress, in one sense, you are part of the American overclass in terms of the amount of power and influence you have. You don't have to be an economic royalist as well. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be a vow of poverty necessarily, but basically your expectation should be, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do my public service, and I'm going to have a modest, not like, doesn't have to be austere, but modest, comfortable life thereafter. None of the stock trading, Nancy Pelosi making millions on a, you know, no on a Microsoft shit, trade no immediately before shit, they get no a military shit, contract. None, none of, of that crap. Get rid of your stocks. Get rid like. Oh, it should be illegal for for Congress people and senators to own stock. stock when you're, I mean, it's crazy. Fuck out of here. Yeah, so they're I'm all super corrupt. Hundred percent down with the 
when you get out, you're not going to have a job again. You're going to have That's a pension. Right. Mm -hmm. You serve the country. Thank you for that. We will pay you a pension for the rest of your life. That's it. Because it's public service and you yes. signed up for this and you're going to know it going into it. Yes. That there's no cashing that, in after you get out. And that's going to change the type of people that you attract That's exactly well. right, which is good. Yeah. Um, so the another thing I wanted to ask Professor Wolf about was, uh, you're going to like this one, the PRO Act and unions. Because I do think there's sort of a conflict between his idea, democracy at work, mm. and unionization. He would say unionization is like a stopgap. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But I don't think he, I mean, I, I, I know from speaking with him before, I mean, he's definitely a big labor Because he's pragmatic. Supporter. Yeah, because he's pragmatic. Right. You know, we're and not going to get to democracy at work like that. Well, and unions are part of democracy at work. I mean, you're right that ultimately you would want the workers in, in the, um, on the shop floor to have even more power, to even more say where it's not like we're head to head with management, but everybody's involved with management. But unions are a form of democracy at work. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that he would be opposed. I would think that he would see that as sort of like a stepping stone or a way of building this idea of, of solidarity and democratic decision-making yeah, well, within he, a workplace. I think he would argue that eventually the idea of the union is like, let's eventually have just the union. Right. So there's no there's no class struggle, there's no power struggle, there's no the boss versus the union. It's yeah. just everybody's the union and the union. Yeah, makes and we're the making the calls. Right. We're no longer fighting with management. We are management. We are and we're management, all making right. the calls. We're all our own boss, basically. Right. Exactly. Um I also so I had some tough questions for him that I'm sad I didn't get to. One of them was wouldn't democratic run companies still deal with pr the problem of externalities? And I don't I don't view it as inherently obvious that they would deal with the problem of externalities any better than capitalist systems do. So, for example, if you have a company that um, there's a very famous case of like this company dumping toxic stuff into the Hudson River because yeah. it was cheaper to do that than get rid of it the yeah. right way. Mm -hmm. I don't view it as obvious that if you had a democratically run company that they wouldn't also make that decision because they're they would get paid more too if you dispose of that toxic waste in a way that's that's quick and efficient and doesn't cost a lot of money. Well, so here's here would be the pushback. And there was a, a story in the Washington Post this week about um, controversial plastics manufacturing plant that may be put in down in a very poor and um, overwhelmingly black parish in Louisiana. This part of Louisiana already know, known as Cancer Alley because they have such high cancer rates, probably because of the industrial pollutants um, and chemical manufacturers that are already there. And experts say that this plastics manufacturing plant, because of the amount of emissions and the type of crap that they would put into the river and put into the air and all of that, could possibly double again the cancer rate of the surrounding era, area. Now, if you live in that community, and you're thinking of like what type of, uh, what type of business, what type of product, what are we going to do? You're never going to do that crap. And but, if you did do it, you have to live in that community. But and not you every. Have to, you have to drink that water. But not every so, factory is going to have just people from that community. Well, but I think part of the idea here is that right now with capitalism, everything is so anonymized. Everything is so removed. I mean, think about Amazon. Think about Walmart. We used to have more of the local small town with the shopkeeper. And so the profits stay local. There's a little bit more of a sense of community responsibility because you have to live there. Salaries were much lower because you're like sort of living in the realm of reality in your community. So there was more of a sense of social responsibility there. Now everything is so atomized and so anonymous that 
whoever owns that factory, they don't live in that town. They don't give a shit what happens to the people there. So what I'm saying is, I don't think it would solve it, but I think if you had things that were more locally connected and it's the people of the community that are working there and making the decisions, it wouldn't solve all the problems of externalities. But I actually do think that it would be, there. you would see more responsible decision-making that took into account, not just, am I getting mine, but what does this mean for the water that our kids are going to drink? What does this mean for like me being able to look people in the eye when I go to the grocery store or go to church on Sunday? So I do actually think it would be an improvement. I, I feel like that's a, without trying to make one, you're actually making a very libertarian like argument. Like, oh, the business will take care of it. No, not necessarily. You, there's zillions of neighborhoods around New York City. If people are coming to a factory from all these different neighborhoods, it's no guarantee that these people are going to see the direct consequence of dumping some shit in the river. Maybe none of them. Who swims in the, in the Hudson River? Yeah, but, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> but I'm not, you're, you're kind of strawmanning because I'm not saying like, so get rid of government regulation and it'll be fine. But I am saying that you will probably have on balance better decision making. And then, of course, you should still have like government regulation involved to make sure that you aren't polluting right, but the that, air and the water and all of that stuff. So, But then correct, which then the point stands that this idea of democracy at work still leaves massive issues. Sure, no, not, not just little issues, massive issues. You know, like that's that's a real issue. So you still want to have... You want democracy at work, but you also want, like, a state capable of sufficient regulation. Of course. Which, again, is more of a, instead of a market socialist idea, that's more of a social democratic idea. Sorry to be a social democrat bro here, but that's what that is. You know what I mean? Explain. Well, it's it's statism. So, just like we were talking about before, there's statist and non-statist versions yeah. of leftism. Professor Wolf's ideology is a very non-statist version of leftism. I don't know that I would, I well, would, like, it, I would like to have him here to argue okay, that point. I'm not, I'm not sure I took that but from But all of his said. focus is on the business, right? De de democratize the workplace, democratize the workplace, mm -hmm. democratize the workplace. Great. There are still massive problems at the state level that you have to address. Sure. But again, I didn't hear him. I mean, he really bristled at like you labeling well, it like libertarian the, at all. Right. But okay. because go he read believes, the definition of market socialism because, or libertarian socialism. And he sort of fits in those but boxes. He, he doesn't. He definitely bristled at both of those terms. Because he doesn't like them. Because I don't want to argue when he's not here to like say what he actually thinks. And we're both like sort of assuming what he thinks rather than having him here to defend. But he didn't say anything about like dismantling the government whatsoever or lessening their role or power. So, I mean, he talked a lot about actually really aggressively using the government to make sure that, you know, that we could have incentives to create this type of system and move in this direction and create, I remember he talked about create the government creating a co-op sector. So, I didn't get a libertarian, like, let's not have the government involved thing I'm at all. I'm not saying he said that. I'm just saying it's a fundamentally different thing than his obsession. He's obsessed with the business aspect of it, and there's not as much focus on the state aspect of it and an efficient regulatory body, which is equally as important. But there are plenty of people, maybe not him, but there are plenty of people who would fancy themselves market socialists mm. who would be like, actually, they would say what you said, except they'd be harder line. They would say like, oh, you live in the community. It'll kind of take care of itself because people want to be able to look at other people in the eye at the grocery store. Yeah. So no, look, it's like good. I you said, don't need the regulation. No, no. I, I know you're not saying that. Look, and I know balance, he's not saying that. But a lot of people would say that. And But you would agree that on balance, the decision making would probably be more responsible if it was more it driven would, by the community versus like anonymized, you know, people in Bentonville, Arkansas, making decisions for the entire country. I think in many ways, yes. But I do think there will be a number of areas where it is no better than capitalists. No better. 
Give me an example. Because it's not a cure-all to have, you know, let's have 10 people in the room making a decision instead of one person in the room. It's not a guarantee that the 10 people there are going to be reasonable and environmentally conscious. You still have massive disagreements. You're still going to have people who are conservative by nature, who are sort of like, fuck the environment. You know what I mean? Sure, 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 sure. But I do think on balance, it's not about, it's partly about the number of people, but I think it's more about where those people are and whether they have to live at all with the consequences of their decision. I mean, I would make the analogy to... Part of the problem that led to the housing crisis and collapse of 2008 is that, you know, it used to be, right, this is like very sort of 1950s mayor, you want to buy a house, you get a mortgage from your local lender, the banker knows who you are, they hold the loan, it doesn't get like bundled up and sold off in a million pieces, so they have a sense of who you are and whether you're going to be able to pay. Now, there were all types of problems with that system too, by the way, because mostly because of discrimination, but... It was a much more locally based system. Then with the housing crisis, what you had is these mortgages, you you know, they would rest at the financial institution locally for one second before it gets bundled up, sold off, and then securitized. And none of the people trading these securities have any connection whatsoever to the underlying asset. They know. I mean, some people, some of them did know that it was crap. A lot of the people that were involved had no idea that these things that they were buying and trading were total junk, total garbage. And so it's that level of sort of like anonymous disconnect from any local context, consequence, awareness of what your actions are doing and how they're going to ripple throughout the community. I do think that that is a big I do think that is a big problem. And I think what he's talking about, it's not a cure all. Of course, there's still going to be bad decision. Of course, there's still going to be nefarious people and bad decision making and things that create externalities. But I believe, as part of my ideology, that having things be more locally rooted, locally based, rebuilding those bonds of community and sense of responsibility one to another and what your actions do and how they'll impact the surrounding community so that the only thing that you're valuing isn't what's in my paycheck, what are the bottom line profits, that there are other values that are sort of under understood and recognized. Yeah, I do think that what he's talking about would help in that regard. Fair enough. But at, at point is, in a big place like New York City, you could still have a situation where a bunch of people work at the factory and still nobody's necessarily affected by the environmental decisions made at that factory. Mm. That's definitely possible. I think, I wonder if maybe part of why we have very... I don't even know that we really have different views, but that we are approaching this from a different way is that like you grew up in a city and I grew up in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, know people so who go have to the like, fucking store. I don't know the right, douchebag who I see next when to I me. Go I'm to like, the get y, the fuck away like, from me. No, everybody. Like, right. Still, you know, I live now in the town where I grew up and it still has that feel. So I can, I imagine it, I think in a little bit of a different way than you do just because totally. of our, our upbringing perception there. Um, one of the problems, one of the questions I wanted to ask him is very simple. What, are the problems that you foresee with democratically run companies? Mm. So I'm curious if he's thought about it from that very critical. I'm sure lens. he's seen some things fall apart. That'd be yeah, interesting I mean, to know. About. Listen, I'm going to say something that's going to piss off a lot of people, but I'm saying it because I think it's true. There is an efficiency that comes with a good hierarchy. There is an efficiency. Mm-hmm. If you have a hierarchy and the person at the top knows what they're doing and they're on top of their shit and the people below them are down for the cause and willing to listen and willing to sort of take orders and steps. Yeah. That can be super efficient. Yeah. I think that we have an obsession with efficiency. That I definitely agree with that. Yeah. I think so we do. like Amazon's a good example of that. Yes, that is that's Hyper a great example. Fucking efficient and people nightmare are shitting company, in bags and pissing in jars. Everything. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would personally I think we have almost like a religion of efficiency 
in the country that has, again, eroded like a whole host of other values, what? including including just like basic humanity, like you were saying, that it's worth trading, you know, a, a few seconds or a few minutes on the delivery time if, you know, whatever, the drivers can pee in a bottle and shit in a bag. We just don't really want to know about it. Just, like, make sure the bag is out of the truck right, before exactly. we return it to the station. Like, th these companies think that that's a worthwhile trade-off. And I think a lot of the population just kind of has become um, indoctrinated to just, like, accept that. That, like, oh, well, that's just the way things have to be. Well, I'll go a step further. I don't just think it's a religion of efficiency. I think it's a religion of authoritarianism. I think people in some ways are willing to question power and authority in ways that they've already been pre-granted the ability to do that. Like when it comes to politicians, like, yeah, shit on politicians all day long. But when it comes to their boss, a lot of people are sort of trained and pacified and willing to accept this is just the way it works. The boss tells me to do something. I got to do it. And I that's a very authoritarian mindset. I think that's true. I think there are two things there. The American dream is really weaponized in that regard of like subtly you've been told from the time that you were born that the people in power deserve to be there. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, it's a meritocracy. It's a meritocracy. Yeah. And you, too, can work hard and make it. And even when people intellectually kind of know that's bullshit, it's so seeped into the culture that it's hard to shake. I mean, I still find myself like, you know, intimidated by people that are supposedly the whoever, whoever. And like, I don't quite fit in those rooms, even though I fully know that the American meritocracy is total bullshit. Complete bullshit. It's a hard thing to shake, right? Yeah. I think especially if you are like a working class person who's been told your whole life you should be ashamed of any, you know, of any failures of success or not being able to climb up the ladder, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is, again, to go back to Amazon and the union drive that just failed down in Bessemer, like they have no other option for job. There's no other choices. If you're in a place like Bessemer, Alabama, which is exactly like thousands of towns across the country, Amazon is the only company that really, the really the only game in town. So you talk back to your boss, you don't do the shit you're supposed to do, you vote to join a union that you know is gonna piss them off, you're taking your, you're putting your life and your job, your livelihood and your job at risk. And so, yeah, you keep your mouth shut because you don't wanna watch your kids go to bed hun hungry. Yeah, you know, and I think to echo your point, is that does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Echo your it point? Does, um, I would flip it and have it so that we basically have universal collective bargaining. And I guess you could opt out of it, but the default is you're in the union yes. right away. That should be the default. It and, should be opt out rather than opt in. Right, because to, again, to Nordic bro here, but like <laughs> when some of those countries... That's what they have, that basically everybody's part of a union. And so they don't even have a minimum wage in a lot of those countries because people are making like at least $30 an hour effectively. Yes. And that's what happens when you have collective bargaining right. and they actually fight for you. Right. Um, so anyway, just one or two more real quick and then, then we'll wrap it up here. But um, I wanted to ask him what proposals that the Democrats can and should steal from the Labor Party in the UK because they're way in front of us when it comes to a lot of these issues. And then also... To what does he attribute virtually all of the Democratic Party abandoning FDR, New Deal-style liberalism? Mm. Because I'm sure he has so much to say about that. What are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, I think it goes back to the conversation we had before. I think it about has money. to do with money, and I think it has to do with um, the the New Democrat era with mm -hmm. Bill Clinton, yeah. where basically, you know, the DCCC and Third Way, and they started taking corporate money. And they were like, hey, what if we... 
stop just taking money from lawyers and teachers and unions and also took it from Wall Street and also took it from military industrial complex and also took it from all these nefarious. Yeah, 100 percent. And then what ended up happening is you saw the Democrats over time more and more align with a lot of Republican ideas. And so you have basically two right wing parties. One's a far right wing party. One's a center right party. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with that analysis. And then I think there's also like, you know, the 80s were like a very scarring time for the Democratic Party. Because they thought we went too far left. And so and we got to be well, like Reagan. When Bill that was yes, that was the analysis at the time. I mean, you can see this is Joe Biden's political formation, right? right he adopts right. all this mm -hmm. Reagan language. Tough on the, crime. Tough on crime yeah. and the war on drugs and all of the racial like overt and undertones of that. And then also this deficit hawk, low tax deregulation mm -hmm. mindset. Um, that leads to Bill Clinton passing NAFTA and ending welfare as we know it and the era of big government is over and all of that. So when Bill Clinton ran on that program and won, then everybody who they were already sort of incentivized to go in that direction, because like you said, it means, oh, we get to take all this corporate cash like those yep. guys do. Mm -hmm. and we get to get the fancy jobs mm -hmm. when we're done like these guys do. So there's already an incentive there. And then once Bill Clinton wins using that ideology, even though if you look at the way he ran the first time around, language is a lot different from how he ultimately ended up governing. But we can put that conversation aside for another time. But they got to seize on that and say, Oops, this is how you got to do it. You got to go to the right. So you people wisdom, yeah. were way mm -hmm. too far to the left. It was a disaster politically. You know, yes, look, sure, we all really want single payer health care. We really want all of these things that you're talking about. We just can't do it. Political reality. So much as we'd love to. We got to sell out to big business like they do. Yeah. And I hate how wrong that is, because to this day, the Democrat who won by the biggest margin. FDR mm -hmm. to this day, everybody just forgot that this guy won. The guy won four times. He was so popular that Republicans were like, if we don't do term limits. Yeah. These motherfuckers are never going to lose yeah. ever. Yeah. He dragged the Republican Party to the left because he was so popular. I think the guy he ran against, one of the guys he ran against, I don't want to butcher this, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and talk it. anyway. Just go ahead. I think his name was like Wendell Wilkie or something. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I watched like a campaign ad from, from back then. Okay. And the dude's trying to, he's trying to be like, I love the New Deal and I want to give everybody health care and I want to, this was the Republican Party and this was the Republican Party all the way back then. And we've talked, had a similar conversation. What was it? It was like William Howard Taft or something who came out in favor of like, I think Americans should only work four days a week or, or have like three months paid vacation or something. Four days a week, yeah. This was the Republican Party. It was the Republican Party. And now the Democrats, if you bring that up in Democratic circles, they'll be like, like, ha, ha, totally idiot, go away. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, the thing that bothers me more than anything is that that conventional wisdom is now so solidified that like, they look at Bernie and it really was this like super smug dismissal of like child zero chance, which is why for the longest time Hillary didn't take him seriously at all. Yeah. Even as the polls were like, he's nipping at your heels. She was like, child too far left. No way. Right. You know what I mean? So that drives me crazy. Uh, on a hopeful note, perhaps we can leave it here. Um, I do think that, and I say this, you know, from my own perspective, I do think that Bernie gave people permission to question the bounds that had been put on the debate. That's true. You know, there was this very narrow, like, you're only allowed to be this far and mm -hmm, this far mm -hmm. and that's it. And I do think that 
maybe the most profound impact he'll ultimately have is just opening people, myself included, eyes to like, no, no, no. There's a whole realm of possibilities out there. You don't have to confine yourself to these narrow choices. And sure, is it is it incredibly hard to sort of break the stranglehold of where politics exists today? Yes. But even just giving people the idea that there is more out there than what has been on the neoliberal table for the past 30 years was incredibly important. Yeah, I'll just say uh, my final point is that you're right about Bernie, 100%, but he's not a closer, and he doesn't have the eye of the tiger, and he plays too nice with evil. Indeed. His own niceness weaponized against him. That's right. And yeah. seeds of his own destruction, I guess. Back That's to correct. the uh, Nordic mm -hmm. comparison. Um, that was fun. Uh, we really genuinely have fucking incredible guest next week i don't even know who it is don't say well it. i'm not gonna say it because i feel like every single time we say it uh, something comes up yeah i know who it is i know who it is so just know not saying it <laughs> just know listen go to Substack. you're gonna be excited pay the five dollars a month watch the video you see it on friday we see it a day early if you want to wait until saturday to get the free audio whatever but it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> That's my pitch. Do you like my yeah. pitch? <laughs> Kyle will look down on you, but whatever. It's fine. I'll hit you forever, but fine. Uh, <laughs> I guess if you want to wait for the free audio, go ahead. If you want to make that choice. Thank you guys for hanging out with us. We will see you next week. <laughs>